Welcome to Newton & Co. I'm Chris Coe, and for this podcast, we're going to travel to the other side of the world, 11 hours time difference. But before we do that, let me introduce my co-host, David Newton, who will tell you all about who we're speaking to. Indeed. Uh, Hello, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for joining us again. Today, we have, well, we have um, someone that's been a photographer for at least three decades, uh, if not longer, right at the forefront of wildlife photography, a gentleman by the name of Jason Edwards, a National Geographic photographer of quite some significant repute, um, not least for being the face of Pure Photography, Nat Geo's photography channel, uh, and a fellow of the International League of Conservation Photographers based in Melbourne, and just recently free of your Melbourne lockdown, so you were saying. So Jason, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Yes, and, and free again at last. Ready, ready to travel <laughs> once more. Yeah, that's right. For someone with uh, with the wanderlust, it must have been painful being locked down for so long. I think um, the the word that most commonly springs to my mind is devastating. I think is the word I would use for for anyone um, who is a creative. And let's face it, for, for all photographers are creatives at one level or another. To have that taken from you makes the everyday life quite difficult I think let's I mean we might come back to that in a little bit but we're going to start off we want to talk about you and your photography we do have um, any regular listeners will know we have some some common questions that we ask but really we're just going to get you going and, and see where it leads us so to begin with when did you first pick up a camera I said you've been shooting for three decades or longer when did you first pick up a camera when did that photography bug really bite for you I was probably um, maybe only 13 or 14 years old and I went on one of those ubiquitous uh, school trips, you know, that we all seem to do. And and in Australia, it was surprisingly or not surprisingly, given 85% of the country is desert, we, we, we went to the desert and I took my mum's compact camera and with the canister film, the little Kodak canister film, and I found instantly at that age that... Uh, that I was very keen on telling stories. I, I painted and drew extensively as a child. That was that was my passion, painting and drawing, and I was fixated on composition. So having that first opportunity uh, to pick up a camera, really, uh, even though it wasn't digital, it made it instantaneous in my mind, the images that I was creating. It was funny when I went back uh, and started reviewing my career, I actually found earlier images from when I was 10 and a school excursion again, they allowed us to go to uh, Melbourne's airport, Tullamarine, and this would happen now, but the images feature a Pan Am 747, and, and we were on the tarmac underneath the Pan Am 747 as a class of 10-year-olds. Can you imagine anyone allowing that to happen these days in health and safety? Way too much red tape these days. <laughs> I know, can you? I mean, someone, security would have you in the on the ground with duct tape around your wrists, I think, but... Um, <laughs> It's uh, and so my um my earliest images when I look back at those two those two attempts I can see maybe it's a little bit of vanity maybe but I can see some of that um early storytelling trying to creep through into the pictures that I took a little bit after that school trip my grandmother went to Hong Kong and I'd been saving my my paper round money. And I had $250 in the bank and I gave that to her because I'd had an epiphany at that point, even as a teenager, which most teenagers don't, that I wanted to make images for a living. And she brought me back a Casina CT7 35 millimeter camera. 
which apparently was the world's first electronic camera, although I don't know if that's accurate or not, and a 50 millimeter lens and a small flash for my birthday. I had some uh, sporting images of my friends published off my third roll of film. So for me, that there was that hot spot of creativity coming through right in those early teen years. When was it that you decided to actually turn this clearly early developed passion but into a career? How did you, you know, make that leap to taking pictures because you were passionate about telling stories and creating images to then actually turning it into a career? Did you have an inspiration behind that? Was it just the act of taking pictures? I think it was, I think it was probably the latter. Once I, I started taking images and, and I'm sure we're all old enough to remember that joy of getting film back and, and seeing what you got. And uh, whether it was family or friends or, or holidays or just weekends, when I went through <clears throat> high school, I mean, surprisingly, the, my school that I went to was quite a large school and produced a yearbook. And when they called, made the announcement over the loudspeaker to, for the photographers of the school to come for the yearbook photo, I didn't think they were talking about me. And yet so many of the pictures in the yearbook were actually taken by me. So I didn't have, I don't think I really had at that point the desire to say, I'm going to wind up with National Geographic or supplying imagery to publishers around the world. That developed more after I'd left high school. And you're probably best known for your natural history photography, your conservation work and, and wildlife images. Were these always subjects of interest to you or did that develop later on? No, I think biology was always that, that prima facie part of my brain that was active. Uh, the school I went to was very academic and I, I actually had planned to go and become a pilot in the Air Force. Now, a lot of boys say that, except I worked for years academically to go to this school to do that. In the process, I metaphorically burned out my eyes when I went for, I was in the Air Corps, I used to go and stay on the bases and fly on the bases. And it was in those latter years of high school that I discovered that I couldn't go in because I, I had an eye, eye disorder. Thankfully, throughout that same process, my love of biology, chemistry, physics, all of the sciences had stayed with me. And, and my earliest, probably my, one of my most early letters to, to Father Christmas, of all things, was requesting books that showed all the wildlife of the world and the habitats that they inhabited. And, and of course, Father Christmas delivered those books and they became my most read books as a child. So I had a dual path, if anything. I, I, I had a path that was creative in the arts of painting and drawing, but simultaneously I was fixated on documentaries and, and Attenborough and, and reading books about wildlife from different parts of the world. So I was fortunate that I had that backup when the Air Force didn't, didn't eventuate for me. And in your early career, were there any photographers who influenced or inspired you? Uh, and what was your first big break as a photographer? Yeah, it was interesting. So when I finished high school and, and you know, this almost sounds a little bit terrible because I've, it's one of the most sought after jobs on earth, but I was offered straight out of high school a position as a zookeeper with the, with the Royal Melbourne Zoo, with the Zoological Board of Victoria. Melbourne Zoo is actually the world's second oldest zoo to London Zoo. And so I went straight from high school to working in an environment with wildlife and zookeepers, a lot of people may not realise this, but zookeepers are avid book collectors. So for me, I was always hunting photography books at that point. Uh, there was Americans like Leonard Lee Rue that had an influence in what I was doing. But also, too, I was surrounded by several hundred species on a daily basis that 
I had an opportunity to point the camera at. So, you know, I was shooting all the time, but I was a zookeeper. I didn't have the camera over my shoulders. I had to clean and care for the animals. Um, but I used every every single opportunity, mornings, lunches, afternoons, to to try and learn animal behaviour whilst I was there and photograph those species. Interesting. It's, uh, uh, it's something we find, actually, you know, a lot of people we talk to, they've had maybe access to something that's then helped develop them further um, and or, or has, has ignited their passion to a greater level. Uh, and I think it's very true that having that access early on is quite an important thing, it's quite key, or can at least be very helpful. And very much so. And for me, my uh, to your point, Chris, the first image of wildlife that I ever had published was of a South American maned wolf, which was in our collection. And the science, one of the zoological societies called up and they were looking for a picture and it went onto the back cover of a science journal. And I remember the joy of seeing, even though it was an animal in captivity, of, of seeing that animal picture in print. When I, you know, to fast forward, and we can touch on this again, if you like, but I remember as, as, the, as the youngest as I was at the time when I came into the fold at National Geographic, learning how many photographers at Geographic had had, as you say, David, you know, these other interests or these other pastimes or these other studies that were not necessarily photography related, but contributed to the success of their careers. I don't think people really understand how common that is in professional photography, that people have not necessarily only ever done photography to, in order to make a successful career from it. And also zoos are hotspots. Zoos are hotspots for media. You have a, a baby gorilla or, a, or something arrive at the zoo and all of the media is there. And so I was shooting gold 100 negative film and I was 18 years old and all of these press photographers were there. And, and so I had access to those people, albeit briefly, who would then give me advice about, well, you should change the transparency or, you know, you should do this and so on and so forth. And, and I learned very early about the value of copyright and, and protecting my interests and what I wanted to do with my photography. And I mean very, very early. I, I've, I spent six months of my one year's salary on a copyright lawyer to, to develop a, a terms and terms of trade for me so that when people would use my work, I was protected. And I was 18 or 19 at that point. And, and companies would come to the zoo and ask for pictures. And the zoo didn't have them, so they would pass them on to me. And then if I didn't have the shot, I would try and shoot the shot. Um, and supply it as stock for publishers in Australia and then eventually internationally. Skipping back, you talked about your first published picture and you're talking about a single frame. Um, and I'm going to have to read this to make sure that I don't mess it up because it's definitely a quote of yours. Uh, you said photography is more about, is about more than just capturing beautiful pictures. The goal is always to tell a story. My images come from stories larger than the individual frame. Now, you started with a single frame. How did you go from a frame to a story, that storytelling process? How did that come about? You know, that's a, a fantastic question because for me, as, as someone who was fascinated in the biology of species, it was one of those scenarios in that first frame. Maine wolves are, are famous for their long legs and their, their enormous ears. They call them foxes on stilts. And, and so that first frame, my, my intent was to tell the story through those long legs and, and those ears. So it was a front-on portrait that I took. Uh, you know, it would be fair to say those early years, it was very much a, a process of stamp, stamp collecting or sample collecting. My goal was to shoot as much as I could possibly shoot of, of as many species 
if I saw a garbage bin overflowing, that had an environmental connection for me in my brain somewhere. If I saw a great sunset or leaves changing colour, everything was of interest to me to tell a story about that moment in time. It took, it does take time for you to develop that into a storytelling process, but also to all of the money that I earned from those small sales and the money that I earned from the zoo as a zookeeper went into funding all of the trips that I did. If I took myself off to Africa or South America or to the desert in Australia or around Australia, I was trying to find a collection of frames from each location that told a story about what I'd experienced at that moment. Very primitively, but I set myself that goal. If I went somewhere for an hour or somewhere for a day or somewhere for a week, I was interested in what can I get that really tells a story about that place. It's interesting that you found very early in your career a story in an overflowing rubbish bin. Let's explore this storytelling a bit more. Do you think you can capture a story in a single image or does it always need more frames? No, I think you can tell a story in a single frame, most definitely. It's not the easiest thing to do. If anything, it's probably the hardest thing to do in photography. And it should be a goal that every photographer who who is interested in storytelling or even really any photographer should be aiming for some, some story to come through that image, whether it's a portrait of a person or an opening flower or something. This is my humble opinion. So, And if I look back at my entire career, right at this very moment, I would say that that's almost been the driving goal of my entire career, even before I was getting assignment work, was to tell a story in a single frame. Uh, I think it's very interesting in that, you, you are obviously a, a National Geographic photographer as well, and National Geographic is all about telling stories. So it seems like that was clearly a very natural fit from the very start. You, you were telling stories, National Geographic wants to tell stories, it's environmental, sustainability, conservation, all of that. I'm just wondering how, you know, how did you get your first break, let's say, with Nat Geo? How did you get into them, get your first commission? How did that process come about so part of the the contract that i i developed as a as a a young photographer was that if someone didn't publish my name with the image i invoiced them an additional 100 percent now that seems quite bold by today's standards and if i look back at this and think that this is 35 years ago or something most people would go how did you pull that off but i was merciless in that because there was no internet there was nothing if it was advertorial, so if it was advertising, quite often you don't, or most of the time, you don't get an, an image credit even today because the rates are higher for advertorial. That's always been the case. But for me, it was crucial for me to get my name out there to try and spread the, the message of the work that I was telling. So um, to work that back to Nat Geo is that eventually, because I was my name was appearing in so many publications, I I received a call from a a particular magazine. Can you go and shoot this for us? It'll take you an hour or two hours or something. And I would go off and I would shoot that. If the shoot was successful, and again, keeping in mind, this was in the days of film, so you weren't able to see what you were capturing at the time. And a good example of that is um, Australian Geographic called up and said, can I photograph a new species of sea snake? They've got one at the aquarium. They think it's going to die. Can you race down there and do it? I raced down there. The aquarium told me where to park my four-wheel drive. I raced inside. I photographed the snake. I came out. My four-wheel drive had been towed away. It cost me three times more to get my four-wheel drive back and pay the fine. 
then I got paid for that hour of work. But I proved myself and the next call I got was for four hours. And then eventually the four hours becomes a one day assignment. If that's successful, then an editor might give you a two day or three day assignment. And then you build it up to a week and so on and so forth. You're proving yourself every time. I didn't actually feel that I was ready bringing that, segueing that back to your question about National Geographic. I didn't feel that I, I didn't expect a call from National Geographic. And I, for a long time, I didn't feel that I was ready, even though my imagery had been used by many, many publications. But I decided one day to call. I literally cold called National Geographic. I, I, I called reception and <laughs> I got this Australian accent on the other end of the line. And I said, look, I don't know who I need to speak to but can I please speak to someone from maybe the magazine in natural history? And they put me on hold for a few minutes, said, what's your name? And, and um, when the phone answered, it was uh, the director of photography for wildlife at National Geographic magazine. And her opening line was, we've been waiting for you to call. Of course, that is the dream comment that every single photographer wants to hear. And it will stay with me as one of the most poignant moments of my career. But what I realized after that was that they'd been watching where my work had been published and they'd been seeing my name attached to it. So the vetting process had been going on in the background unbeknownst to me that they were looking at the stories I was trying to tell, the single frames that I was having published, um, if I was supplying data or captions and so on and so forth. And at whatever level they'd been looking at the competition or just genuinely looking and she must have been seeing what I'd been doing for quite a number of years by that point. And so I was willing to have that conversation. There's so much to, to pull out of that on so many levels. And I'm going to start with instant gratification as a, as a, as a topic for this, because you talked mm -hmm. about starting to shoot with film and not knowing what you were getting. But then that seemed incredibly related to how you built up your career from an hour's work to four hours work to a day to a couple of days to a week. And it seems like we're in a, a society or a situation now where everybody just wants to be the Nat Geo photographer right at the start. That's it. That's their goal. They're going to be a Nat Geo photographer. But it seems like the two sides of your learning your photographic skill through film and being patient and waiting, it wasn't about instant gratification. It was about building it up, learning your craft and getting your name and work out there such that when you then made that call, they were ready for you or they were waiting for you, which is, as you say, obviously one of the, the probably the best comment you could ever hear. And it's interesting how you did that, because I don't think people would do that now. I, I'm curious to know whether that was just something innate. Was it a plan? Did it just happen because that's your nature? Where did that come from? I think in part um, it's, it's my nature, uh, not in a self-deprecating way necessarily, but I think, you know, my, my Australian upbringing is very quite subdued, I think. You know, it's, it's part of our British ancestry, I guess. You know, we don't, we don't stand up for fear of being cut down. And so I was, I was brought up with a, a long work ethic from my dad. And so for me, I, I needed to understand why things were working and why things weren't working photographically. And there wasn't that instantaneous result where I could look at the screen and you would put the film in, negative film, and get it back. And then when I went to transparency, and 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 it was a gift for me to go through that period of Kodachrome 64 
you know, that National Geographic iconic film that they built 80 years on or whatever it was, where there was one third of a stop leeway. You know, if you blew your highlights out by a third, you were dead. If you blew your shadows out, you were dead. And so it taught me, inherently taught me roll after roll after roll, how to read natural light. I mean, I don't know, and for the record, I don't know how to set up studio lighting or anything. You know, I have no skills in that space, but you can plonk me anywhere on the planet under any lighting conditions and I'm pretty comfortable working straight out of the bag. So I, I think for me, I wanted to feel that, or I needed to feel, I needed to feel creatively that, that I'd reached a point that if someone said yes, not that I was overly confident that I could achieve what they wanted, but that I at least could work hard enough and diligently enough with the, the skills that I'd obtained to try and achieve the goals that they wanted. And that, that takes time. I mean, when I first went to Washington, so after, uh, so after they had that conversation, they asked me what my story was and I submitted some transparencies and said, um, uh, can you go and shoot some more? You know, off my own dime or coin, as we would say. And, and so I went and did another four shoots in the desert about this story I had an idea for. And when I sent those in, the, the magazine said, we don't have room for this in our publishing schedule, but we'd like to break it up and put some in the magazine. Is that okay? Yeah. Oh, my God, yes. You know. And then they made the offer of offers. If you want to take this further, you need to come to Washington. Bring 150 frames that you think tell a story of your career so far. That was decades ago I wouldn't know what to pick now let alone then but I vividly remember having friends and bottles of wine come along and transparency scattered throughout my house and my office whilst we tried to select uh, I flew to Washington and I presented those 150 frames 40 times over 10 days to different editors and directors and publishers people whom I'd never met and I didn't know what their role was and that was interesting to your point because there was things there that it was all transparency, but there were frames there that I didn't think people had understood before, you know, so I chose frames that meant something to me, which again is very, very much a part of my innate ability, I think. So, you know, I was happy to play the long game because I want longevity in my career. And when I was there in those 40 meetings, the reason I talk about those 40 meetings is because I know one who was there would even remember that I went through their office because they're very busy people. But I was told on numerous occasions that if you want to work for National Geographic, you should go out and shoot your suburb for five years. Show us the pictures that you've shot over five years to show us that you can tell a story. Doesn't mean we're going to publish them. We just want to see you're committed and that you can tell a story about a place that you can get to repeatedly. And that's, to me, how I still work now. You know, that's quite a call, isn't it? You know, to if, if you want to get in the door, that's how you need to think. It, it is. It's very interesting. I, actually, you said 150 images to sum up your career, and I instantly got palpitations thinking, how in God's <laughs> name would I do that? Like, that's that's insane to, to come up with, with those images. I, I'm just going to pick up one more thing and then I'm going to hand over to Chris for his question. Coming back to the shooting with film, I think you still shoot with film now and again. You talked Ooh, about being able to see natural light and, and you know, I'd love to know why you still shoot with film. What's, what's the thought process behind that? Um, I, I, I literally shoot with film on every assignment. Um, so I'll take my digital gear and then I'll take a bag of film. I think it keeps me honest is probably one thing that I would say. I love the fact that I can read natural light well. So I, I don't need the screen on the back of the camera. 
you know, I can turn that off if I want to. But the joy of film is that it's only about photography. It's literally only about photography. There's no ego involved. There's no correcting your exposure compensation. You you have all the numbers that you need. You have an aperture, you have an ISO, and you have a shutter speed. Photographers should not need more than that. Um, in my humble opinion, I should probably quantify that. So the nice thing about film for me is that if I have a film camera in my hand, I'm only thinking about the composition and whether I'm recording the available light accurately. And one of my most joyous exercises in this lifetime is to come home and not use the big light box in the office, but to come home with a small light box, a loop, my very old pair of scissors. I should have brought them to show you with the, the tips of them are all twisted and, and some sleeves and some red dots and to splice that film with a, with a bottle of wine open and to spend days just splicing film from one or two shoots with some music on in the background. It, it, it's, a, it's a photographic gift to be able to do that, I think. And do you find, just to continue this, so you're shooting digital, you're shooting film, how often mm -hmm. do the film images get used in relation to the digital or are they just for you? No, 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 not at all. Um, a lot of the film, if, I, if I'm shooting panoramic in film, for example, those panoramics will be will be drum scanned for geographic and and they will be archived in an equal value as the 35 mil that I'm shooting. So I would submit them with the shoot. Uh, now I do that in the past, they would archive the actual transparency. Uh, but also too, I think I think it's important to for me to realize that again, I don't think I've probably ever expressed this, but I like the fact that I can do this. You know, I like the fact that I am good with film. It means a lot to me because I've bled, and literally and metaphorically, <laughs> for, for my art over the years. And, um, and I like the fact that I can look at a scene with a film camera and know I can do it better than a lot of people. And not, not better makes it best, but I can do it. I think that's important for photographers to know that you're not reliant on the technology. It's it's as much as the the time that you've spent in the field doing it. I, that that's very important to me. It's it's good to know that you, you said earlier on you you didn't think you were ready for that geo. I think all creatives have imposter syndrome where yeah. we don't think we deserve to be wherever it is we happen to be. But at the same time, it's nice to hear someone actually taking pride or, or their own pat on the back at something that they can do, because that's important as, as a human being is to appreciate what your skills are and enjoy those skills. Yeah. And and, and I think that's probably, you know, I, I, I would say that about film. I don't know if I'd say that about myself and digital, you know, <laughs> even though the same principle for how I expose digital frames is exactly the same. But also, too, there's a, I don't know, you know, I'm probably using the French phrase incorrectly here, but, you know, there's a certain je ne sais quoi or, you know, a certain element to film when you see it and you see all the, you know, it's a, it's a chemical reaction. It's not, it's not a pixel, you know, there's the tonal range is different, whether some people think it's better, worse, or they hate the noise or the grain or whatever the case might be. But there is something about film, at least, you know, for me and probably generations before me, that means that means a lot in photography because you know there's a there's seemingly more permanence to it to me in some ways than there is in digital and that's not diminishing digital digital's amazing but you know film has a hundred and whatever years of history it's perfectly imperfect it's it's born in mm. the chaotic arrangement of the silver halide on the film rather than the very yes. regular arrangement of, of digital 
A hundred percent. And and so much so that I I actually said to uh, to my dear friend who he's my production director, and I sort of said to him, you know what would be fantastic? You know, f- forget E100 VS and all of these other stocks that we may have shot. You know, at some point, let's find the time just to go back to Kodachrome. And whether it's someone on, an, on a riverbank in India or it's a portrait that I shot for a, a Melbourne Zoo guidebook or whatever the case might be, let's go back and do a project with that tonal range, um, which is what we did in part, and we can talk about it at some point, you know, with the with icebergs. You know, it's it's one of those things that, you know, how do you ever replicate that? And I'm fascinated, I don't know about you, you both, but um, I'm fascinated how now people will buy apps to add noise and grain or, or film styles into, into their images. And you think to yourself, just go and buy some film in a cheap film camera. You can do it all yourself, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm cutting across Chris once again because, sorry, Chris. <laughs> um, you talked about the icebergs and film and we're talking about film and you talked about tonal range. That's an incredibly interesting subject to tackle with film because I think a lot of people, if you ask them about film and they really thought about it, it's the shoulder area of the highlights and how film responds to that versus digital, that linear linear response. And so choosing icebergs, I find intriguing as a, as a topic for film. Where did that come from? Why? Tell me about it. I think it's because, as I mentioned, a, a photographer, I read his book, and most people don't know him, many, many years ago, a, a gentleman in the US called Leonard Lee Rue III. And he did a fantastic wildlife photography book, and it must have been published in the late 70s, early 80s. And he was living on Kodachrome 64. And I think that was the first time I ever read about the fact that he didn't shoot anything less than one third under, one third of a stop under. So um, he was always underexposing. And then there was some explanation that just embedded itself like a steel spike in my brain. And people are always coming up to me if they're going to anywhere with ice, the mountains, Antarctica, the Arctic, it doesn't matter, saying, I've watched this, you know, I've watched this online and people are talking about you should overexpose because of this or overexpose because of that or whatever. And I'm just saying, look, that's, that's great for you, but I live on the dark side. You know, I am <laughs> underexposing ice because of these curves that we're talking about. I, I I like to refer to it, if I'm mentoring people, you know, that underexposing is Darth Vader and overexposing is Luke Skywalker. And, and Darth Vader is so much more fun than Luke Skywalker. And, and so for ice, ice is that quintessential, especially on the, the, that area of ice you're talking about. I have a distinct and utter hatred for hotspots. You know, I, I just hate hotspots. You can work with shadows as a, as a compositional element, but it is very difficult to do that with, with something that is a hotspot. So I will work to the nth degree to remove a hotspot if I can, which always in ice or any subject matter, which means I'm underexposing no matter the format. And film works well when you do that. Really fascinating, Jason. I, I don't mind staying quiet in the background because I'm loving the your passion for photography that's coming through. David and I are both very keen on understanding light and a lot of photographers nowadays don't. They think that they can fix that on the computer or shoot raw and then just be able to adjust it. So it's really interesting to hear what you're saying about that. What is it that that made you take that approach? Was it the fact that you started with film? And do you think you'd have taken that approach if you'd started with digital? I, I think I probably would have taken the same approach because when I was painting in oils, I only ever painted it in oils or, or drew, 
I I was so aware then of elements in pictures that I didn't like. And I remember once, and this was just at high school, I painted a sky in an image and I couldn't get the highlights right. I couldn't get the density right that I wanted. And I worked on this sky for three and a half weeks, which wouldn't sound like a lot to an artist, but to a kid in high school, it's a long time. I think, you know, it's one of those scenarios that if you really look at a scene, I mean, if you actually just remove the the camera physically or metaphorically from your eye and look at a scene and then defocus your eyes, there'll be certain elements that leap out at you in a positive or negative way. Highlights are one of those elements, for me at least, that if they catch my eye, I know they're going to take the story in that direction, no matter what the story is that I want to tell. If there is a, um, and it doesn't mean I don't use them in some compositions, of course, but if there is a, if there's a highlight somewhere, like I'll, I'll just use a mountain, if there's a mountain in the background, but I have even the most critically endangered species in the foreground and there is a hotspot somewhere in the background, I know that every human on the planet is going to see that hotspot before they see this story that I'm trying to tell. If I can't reposition myself or compose the image differently, then the sto- that image won't work for me. So I think I think my dislike of that in my imagery has been has benefited me both in film and in digital because my workflow, um, if you want to talk about that at some point, um, I'm in and out of a picture in 17 seconds, 20 seconds, you know, because I've already exposed for my highlights, you know. I think the the worst thing about digital photography is that exactly what you touched on, Chris, is that people don't necessarily, it's so easy to fix things that I don't think people understand why that thing happened in the first place. And so they go, we can fix it. But for me, that wasn't really the goal that I was after. I needed to know why it happened and how to avoid it in the first place. Because my transparencies were going to somewhere else, to to the UK, to the US, to publishers around Australia. I couldn't fix it once the transparencies were gone. I needed the image that I captured to do all the heavy lifting when it arrived at the client, not by someone working on the latest Mac or whatever. I want to pick up on two points from what you've just said. The first is shadows. I see a lot of people that use HDR, for example, which I hate with a passion because I think shadows are good and I think they they make a picture. And the other point I want to pick up on is observation, taking the time to look without the camera in front of your eye. Can you expand a little bit on both of those? For sure. Um, so I agree with you 100%. And, and I mean, um, HDR, and, and I, I will get, people will hate me for this next sentence, but HDR has its place for people who are, who are shooting HDR. But it is, the, it is the lazy exposer's way out of taking a picture. It is not what you should be doing if you want to cor- if you want to correctly document what you're after. People wonder, oh, why why is it not appropriate for this magazine or this magazine? Well, because there's one sun in our solar system, and that one sun casts a certain light that affects an image in different ways at different exposures throughout that same frame. If you are sitting there and correctly exposing what you feel is correct in each of those elements in the picture, well then you know, you must have more suns in the sky than we have. You know, it's just not real. I hate to tell you this to anyone who's listening to this, but it's not real. But people are amazingly good at it and power to you. I've never taken a HDR frame in my life. I don't know how many frames I've taken. It'd be more than a million. I'm not too sure. Um, I've never taken a HDR. And I think that if you go into composing and exposing a frame, thinking that if I do this as a HDR, it's going to get me out of jail. 
then you're really not as passionate about photography as you you think. I know that's a little bit controversial maybe, but no, have a look at the scene and then think to yourself, yes, it's robbing Peter to pay Paul. All photography is robbing Peter to pay Paul. If you want to get rid of the highlight, you're going to sacrifice multiple things in that frame or equally with shadows, but that's okay. You know, you, you, you have to learn the nuances of the craft. Um, shadows on that note, I love shadows. I mean, shadows are wonderful. You know, they're creatures in their own right. You know, for, for if you're listening and you're into digital, you know, true black, you know, and excuse my ignorance because I don't know a lot about this, but true black, there's no pixels. True white, there's no pixels. Use that, you know, use those shadows. You know, if you've got something, even if there is data in it, use that as an anchor, what I call an anchor. Use it as something that, that holds your image together, that it becomes part of the storytelling process. Don't be afraid of shadows, even if 90% of the picture is shadow. That's okay. What can you do with that shadow? Shadows are marvellous. And of course, the, the planet spins at what, 20,000 kilometres an hour or something. You know, it's shadows are always moving. You know, they're evolving and changing and 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 in their depth and their density and their shape. You know, they, that's a wonderful thing. You could you could spend a lifetime shooting shadows and, and never run out of subject matter, I think. Did that answer or not really? No, I, <laughs> no again, you're just giving us so much information and so much to, to grab onto. So one, HDR, couldn't agree with you more. Me I'm just too. gonna I'm gonna put that out there. Chris and I are in complete agreement. Uh, the whole not wanting to mess around with your pictures, you touched on the fact that, you know, 17, 20 seconds is is your editing time for your picture. I wonder whether that is a background thing, because I'm like you, I come from, I was a marine biologist originally, and then I worked in a wildlife picture library as a picture editor. And I wonder whether it's people that are biologically aware, environmentally aware, it's about the veracity of the image, not necessarily the artificial beauty of the image. I wonder if that's mm. it's telling a truth rather than telling a beautiful airbrushed version of the truth. If that makes sense. Yes, but yeah, very much so. And I think um, I think a lot of people, especially with subject matter like wildlife and natural history, everyone wants the adventure and they want to go to beautiful locations without thinking that they need any background knowledge. You know, because they might not have that background knowledge. They don't have to go and do a six-year degree to get that background knowledge, but having some connection with the subject matter that you're referring to, you know, that you have some idea of the ecosystem or some idea of the species or the culture that you're documenting if you're doing people, um, contributes enormously to how you want to record that subject matter. You know, there, there's no two ways about it. If you have an invested interest in some of what you're trying to document, and there are people that that still go ahead and completely manipulate or, you know, beat the living daylights out of their, their files or their scans to do this, but it gets harder to justify those acts if you have more connection and more knowledge about what you're actually documenting. Because for me, you know, there's, there's frames that have been in that I took in 1990, 1992, the geographic still used now because they haven't dated. You know, the exposure is still beautiful, everything like that. Now, people could get in there and look at that raw scan that they've got and do whatever they want to make it beautiful and it could look like it was shot on the latest mirrorless camera. But the reality is, is that that shot has had a life of 30 years and ongoing because the way I recorded it at the time was accurate and true. You know, is it a Instagram worthy image where people go, oh, my God, that's going to get 10,000 likes or something, you know, um, potentially not, not the way we color correct them. But is the shot in itself 
um, historically significant and, and beautiful in its own right because it reflects a truth. I, I'd like to think so. It's not for me to say, but I hope that it is. We're going we're gonna to come back to your knowledge of subject in a moment with all the assignments that you do for National Geographic and, and your research into that, because I find that interesting in itself. But I want to get back to your shadows for a moment, because Chris, Chris brought your book over, which he's going to be reviewing, your Icebergs to Iguanas. And he called out a picture. He said to me, oh, you, you need to see this picture. So before we came online with you, I was flicking through and we had quite an in-depth conversation about how you shot a particular picture. And I'm going to tell you what it's of and hope you remember it. It's a black-skinned parrot snake. Yes. Uh, and it's very dark. There's a lot yeah, of yeah. negative space in there. And this almost feels like it goes right to the heart of how you said you like to approach things. The, the centre of the image, Chris's point, the centre of the image was it's very dark in the middle, which is not necessarily how someone would approach it. And yet mm -hmm. I looked at it as we were talking, didn't I? And I was mm -hmm. like, that. I think I'd like to think that's how I would have shot it as well, because I don't mm -hmm. see another way of shooting from that frame. And I find from what you've said, this image is almost like a keystone approach to how you do things, how you do yeah. shadows in your composition. Um, and and yeah, yeah. it's one image out of, this is a 400 page tome of a book um, and, and 30 plus years of career. But from what you've said, this feels very much like a, a really clear example of your photographic approach. Yeah, that's a really good example to give because it, it is on all of those fronts. That image is, is that. And, um, and it's also one of those, it's a great example, that image of why you shouldn't be afraid of negative space because negative space has a life of its own and people become very, very concerned about including negative space in pictures. Um, and we all be, be, become predictable. We keep it off to the right or we keep it off to the left or whatever, but, but there are so many ways to use it. And the, in response to the, the question about exposing it, I, and this is going to sound a little esoteric, but the, the zone system, the famous Ansel Adams zone system. Now, I remember uh, I was lecturing for, for one of the MITs, RMIT, many, many moons ago, and there was an auditorium full of people, and I knew the professor, and I was talking about how I expose. And during question time, the professor said, you know, one of the guests there said, uh, how long did it take you to learn the zone system? Now, for, for those people who may not be aware, it's I'm going to simplify it exponentially here. It's looking at all the elements in the picture. And given that you've got a fixed f-stop and a sensitivity, a plate or a film or whatever, the exposure is different for different parts of the picture. So I, I made a, I responded, oh, what's the zone system? And everyone laughed, you know, several hundred people laughed because they were all photography students. And I said, no, seriously, what is the zone system? And the professor, whom I knew at the time, looked at me and did that professor thing where he put his hand on his chin and he explained, you know, Ansel Adams' zone system. And my response was, I choose the part of the image that's most important to me. I, am, I allow myself only one thing in a picture, one thing only. That is, when I look at any scene in any picture I have ever taken, there is one element only that I allow myself. And I build my composition around that one thing and my exposure is calculated around that one thing. And I am as merciless on myself as anyone could ever be. And people say, well, what about a beautiful sunset or something and there's a thousand clouds? There will be something, there will be one cloud or a god ray or something in that sunset that makes me want to take that picture. The snake... You know, it might look that it's like the eyes or the face of the snake because it's so colourful, 
but it, it actually wasn't. You, you, you know, you hit the nail on the head. It was like, how can I translate an oxbow lake, these rare vanishing lakes in the Amazon, which are always in shadow? You know, it was like here was this rain, this snake that had been dipped in an ink in a child's ink pot paint. You know, with with spider webs coming off it. You know, I I had to expose for my one thing and not lose anything. And and when I teach, you know, not you know when I do my version of teaching, if someone's with me, I only allow them one thing till the day they die. I take any further choice away from them because it's crucial to me that. And this is the esoteric part, I guess. Once I pick my one thing. And I know the exposure for that. So I know my f-stop and I know my ISO and I know my shutter speed for my one thing. My brain somehow tells me the, the difference in shutter speeds for every other element in that frame. And it just comes into my head like a screen. And it doesn't matter whether it's blowouts on a mountainside or shadows against the snake. And I compensate using exposure compensation button for my one thing. You know, and I knew immediately if I'm robbing from the face, I'm giving to Paul. If I'm robbing from the shadow, I'm giving to the face. And those numbers, those changes in exposure are what is the passion for me is, is controlling my exposure for my one thing, which is which I build my composition around. I, I don't know if that sounds a little bit convoluted, does it? No, 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 that makes 100% sense. So I feel like I'm talking to a kindred spirit here. When I teach, people say to me, oh, which exposure mode should I use? Should I use evaluative or spot or partial? And we're going to get a little techie now. I use spot for everything on the yeah. basis that you can't expose for every tone in a scene. You can expose mm. for one tone. But fortunately, they're yeah. all relative. So if you pick one tone and you expose for that correctly, everything else yeah. is going to be correct as well. So yeah, it's, it's kind of the same thing, but from a slightly different angle. It's pick it one thing, different angle. get that right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, this is the, and, and I mean, for me, it's funny because if I use spot metering, it throws my mathematics out in my head, you know? So every time I go to a new body, um, invariably, I think in my entire career, I've had one camera body where maybe I had center weighted, but everything else for me has always been matrix because my brain does the math on the matrix, not on the one thing, you know? So if I pick my one thing, my brain does everything else for me, you know, it's not easy. I'm not saying that it's, you know, easy, but... Um, I do it that way too, to actually, with, with Matrix. Do you? And, and then make yeah. the adjustments in my head. See, I'm, I'm just the other way up. Spot, let me concentrate on one <laughs> thing. Just expose that thing correctly. Everything else is fine. I don't have to worry about the rest of the frame if one thing is correct. Right, why am um, I trying to calculate know. multiple tones everywhere? Just Just calculate one of them. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, and this is the, this is the thing that I think this is one of the joys of photography that people don't get, you know, that this is one of the wonderful challenges of the art form. And, and you know, whether you're shooting reportage and it's terribly difficult human stories to tell or whether it's wonderful rice paddies in Asia or it's wildlife in, on a savannah, it doesn't matter. You know, it's, this is all, all part of that incredible passion for it. And um, when we did the colour corrections for icebergs to iguanas, I didn't do them myself. I don't have enough knowledge. But the, the firm that we use, Splitting Image, they went through and, you know, their the senior guy there, Ash, he went through and looked at all the raw scans of the transparencies from that geo. And I gave him all of my raws because I'm always happy to show anyone a raw. I'm not one of these photographers that says, this is what I've got. And they show you the finished file. You want to see my raw? I'll show you the raw. You know, I'm not, I'm not embarrassed to show anyone the raw I've ever taken. And um, Ash went through the, all the pictures in the book and then 
we spent days of me going through just literally saying, you know, that that animal is a little bit warmer or a little bit cold, that yellow's not right or something, because he's not a biologist. He wasn't in the field with me. He wasn't on the mountainside in minus 32. He doesn't know what the light looked like. But it was, for him, it was, and I'm going to speak on Ash's behalf, but it was a great joy because the way we shoot, the way the three of us shoot, I guess, is that he was just looking at the numbers. You know, he was just looking at the CMYK and my numbers were so good that all he did was put the numbers where they should be for a correctly exposed picture. And I was looking at his screen going, oh, my God, that's what I shot in 1994, you know. Um, and then we just had to go through and get any twinks to the colour if he didn't know what the species was because or what the lighting conditions were. And to me, that was one of the, the nicest thing about, you know, the exercise was that the raw numbers, whether it was transparency or digital or whatever, were really good. You know, they they didn't need rebuilding. You know, there's not, I don't think he did a layer in the whole book. There's no dodging or burning in the whole book. I didn't want a book of uh, Instagram looking pictures. I wanted a book of pictures that looked as I shot them at the time. So there's multiple versions of digital. There's multiple versions of film. There's Kodachrome. There's E100. It's all in there. And we corrected it for that particular medium, not to make it look like it, it suited Instagram. I wanted it to look like I captured it at the time. I love the, the purity of purpose of that and the, the purity to your vision, as opposed to the, I'm shooting for Instagram, I'm shooting for a million likes, I'm shooting because that's how I saw it. And I think the world doesn't have enough of that. Yeah, Sorry, that was not a question, that was just a straight I don't have to, <laughs> hopefully I don't. Hopefully I don't have to build a house out of unsold books because I stuck to my philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a big book, it's not going to take many of them. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. Well, I think I think with one of them, my wife could potentially beat me to death. You know, it's like it's three kilograms. She'd only have to hit me a couple of times in my sleep. And, and <laughs> one in each hand, bash your ears together. You're done. <laughs> that's right. But but you know, it is it is one of those. It's one of those things that um, I wish people enjoyed more than or as much as the the instantaneousness of of photography now. You know, we all get that, uh, you know, that kick of joy when we get a, a picture and it looks great on the back of the camera or it looks great on the computer. I, I, My hope is always that people get as much joy out of the process and the challenge of getting a nice image as much as how the image turns out. Because it's to be on the road, as, as you said earlier, I've been on the road for yeah more than 35 years. And, and to get on a plane multiple times a year and to pick up the camera and to shoot every day... Um, it's not about, you know, I need to be paid like everyone else does, but it's not about the money. I wouldn't, I'm a reasonably stocky guy. I could make more money throwing bags of cement, but, you know, to stay on the road, um, to have that passion to create day in, day out, I'm not sitting on the beach drinking pina coladas, although that might occur once in a blue moon. You have to, you have to love photography for other reasons than the finished product to stay on the road and do it for a living. I think anyway, because it takes its toll in so many ways. You're, you're reigniting my desire to get my film stock out. <laughs> I, I remember that one of my biggest buzzes in photography was being able to take a shot and know that I got it without having to look and see it first. And I just found that mm. so rewarding. Um, we're 
close to recording the longest podcast in history. And there's a couple of other things we'd like to cover with you. Um, so let, let's turn away from that a bit and, and talk about okay. conservation and sustainability. They're, they're real buzzwords, often misused buzzwords. What's your take on it? Obviously, it goes without saying it's crucial for photography to be used as a medium for enhancing conservation and environmental issues. That that goes should should go without saying. I I think so many people use them as catch cries these days or wave them as flags. It diminishes sometimes via saturation the effectiveness of the message that they're trying to get out there, because it. it, it whether you want to call them hashtags or whatever we want to call them, I think we have to be very, very careful. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who might have had an image published in a particular BBC, for example, something close to home for you guys. If someone uses one of your images, even in such a wonderful storied magazine such as BBC Wildlife or something, it doesn't make you a BBC Wildlife photographer. It means you've been used, your image has been used in that publication. Conversely, whether it's National Geographic, New York Times, you know, the New Yorker, pick a, pick a publication. What happens, I think, is that people have an image used in some capacity. They then adopt that as who they are as a photographer. And then they go into the world and their behaviour and how they document everything else moving forward is not judged by who they are or the work that they're creating, but it's by the, the branding that they've attached to themselves, not necessarily other people who have attached to them. So what that means for me is that I turn up on an, in, in a country to work in an ecosystem or to work with people or whatever the case might be, and they and everyone's angry that I'm there or people are uncomfortable that I'm there. And, and, and I know this because I've been on the road a long time. And then they say, we had a terrible experience with, you know, Max blogs from National Geographic or something, and he was here and he did this or she was here and she did this and dun, 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 dun. I don't know who this person is. I've never heard of them. I Googled them. Maybe they've had one image published in a Your Shot or something like that. But their behaviour and how they use that work post that experience did more damage to the message that we're trying to tell for that region because they used whatever branding, pick a, again, pick a publication or a publisher, to further their own cause. And, and that means I go in there legitimately, I use that word for myself, to, to then turn around and say... Um, I'm here to help you. You know, we need to tell this story. I'm not just singing your cause, but this is the story I need to tell. And I need to tell all sides of this particular story, whether it's wild horses, whether it's um, poaching, no matter what the story is, I want to hear everyone's. But they've had such a bad experience because of environmental messaging that's gone through by someone who may not genuinely understand the significance of what they're doing or they're, they're after that million likes, you know, so it can go both ways, I think. Do you think that photography or images have the power to make a difference in either conservation or sustainability, or is there just too much noise out there and too many bad images that it's hard to get a message across? Yeah, um, many people would say the latter, that it's hard to make a difference now, it's hard to get the voice heard. I'm, I'm a, a glasses half full kind of, kind of person, you might have gathered that, you know, sort of a little bit too much energy for my own good. If, if I believe that those opportunities to make a difference, to educate people, to inspire people about the wonder of the world, if, if those days were over, I, I would put the cameras down and, and teach surfing for a living or something. You know, I don't think those days are over. Um, I'd like to think those days would never be over. Is the noise, is the cacophony much louder than it used to be? Yes, it is. But what does that mean as a photographer? It means that you have to not use the system um, differently, but you need to be more determined to tell stories that have substance. 
you need to spend that five years in your suburb doing a story or if you don't have that time it's okay but photography is all about less is more you know you can you can tell a story um uh there's an image i took of a poached a burnt torched elephant and it, 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 we got a lot of coverage for it because it involved poaching and it involved national parks evicting indigenous people and it involved viruses you know one frame telling a story about three different elements that were crucial to the communities and to western tourism in that part of the country in that country so I, I strongly believe that there is that voice, but people also need to be determined to do it better, you know, to, to have some, some skin in the game. You know, you've got to have heart in the game. Don't, if you're, if you're looking at doing this for, and many people have made exponentially more money than I will ever make in my life, you know, but if you're, um, if you're in this for fame and fortune, you may, you may achieve that. But at the same point in time, it's a pretty hollow victory, I think. You know, I, I think you've got to really believe in what you're doing to put your body, you know, um, you know, we could do a podcast on what can you do to a human body and still have it vertical. Um, you know, that's, another, that's a whole podcast subject. Um, but, you know, it is one of those things that I think if you're really willing to, to sacrifice, you know, family and friends and, and, and your physical and mental health to go out there and make change, then you need to believe in what you're doing. Well, I'm going to wrap this up with um, a question that we ask everybody. So if you've listened to a few podcasts, you you may have heard this one. And, and we don't ask everybody. <laughs> David sorry, asks everybody. I ask everybody. <laughs> this is trying to get this question out, and I'm fighting him tooth and nail. Um, but I kind of feel like you're going to have a really interesting answer to this, and I, I think we probably touched on some of the things you might say. So if you could go back to the younger you, if you could like take all the learnings that you've had over your career and go back to the younger you, what one piece of advice would you give the younger you that you think would have been the best tip you could give, give yourself? Yes. You know, I, I have thought about that. <laughs> and, um, um, I've thought about that in my life generally, to be honest, what would, what I want to change. Um, I think probably I wouldn't change anything about the learning process that I had because I think that that suited me and who I was. But I think in the business of photography, I think I've probably been uh, too tolerant of people who didn't believe as I believed. I would tell my younger self to to surround yourself at times with people that really do actually value the work that you're doing and and that um, that they're actually trying to make a difference as well, you know, and we all have to do things in business we don't necessarily want to do. But I also know that I spent, you know, years at times working with people in the hope or the misguided belief that we were we were on the same train, when in actual fact I was pushing the train, trying to make change and trying to implement change. And, and I was making those people lots of money, but not necessarily getting everyone moving in the same direction. So I think probably do the business of it if you can, but also too, if you suspect that people are, are not valuing the work that you do or not valuing who you are or, or the, the importance of the, the story that you're trying to tell, then do not embed yourself solely with those sorts of people because that's the type of thing that can destroy you as a creative. You know, we all have to work with people who might be in that space, but, you know, surround yourself also with people who believe in those things as well, so that there's a little bit of a balance. Well, we have to draw this to an end, unfortunately. I happily carry on. What's going through my head at the moment is, wow, 
you've given us um, some fantastic insights and I'm absolutely buzzing with, with some of the things that you've said. I hope our listeners will be too. So Jason, thank you so much for giving us an insight into your world and your photography. It's been brilliant talking to you and uh, we'll leave you alone now to go back to sleep. <laughs> thank you. No worries. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, David. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much.